0: Well, good morning again, Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, Uh, our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 19, and uh, before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus, that he represents us before your throne, uh, we pray that you would uh, grow us in our understanding of that, uh, both this week in Hebrews 7 and, and, and next week as well. Uh, Father, we pray that you would teach us about Jesus, our great high priest, and what it means for him to be our high priest. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds by your spirit, and that you would give us a clear sight of our Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. It is witness of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Well, the writer of Hebrews warned us. Uh, He warned us that he had some hard things to talk about. He wanted to leave the ABCs of the faith and go on to maturity. He wanted to give them solid food and not milk. After the writer mentioned Jesus' high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, he said, about this we have much to say, but it will be hard to explain since you have become dull Of hearing, needing milk, not solid food. Now, I hope you're ready for some of the solid food this morning because in our text uh, this morning, he gets back to Melchizedek. We jump into the deep end of the pool of the Old Testament priesthood. Now, I have uh, broken chapter 7 up into two parts verses 1 through 19 this week and 20 through 28 next week, but it's really one argument about the superior priesthood of Jesus. Now, this was important in the ancient world. See, there was a concern among the Jews and some Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn back to Judaism. See, the ancient Jewish concern was that Jesus can't be a priest because he's not of the line and genealogy of Levi. We already have a priesthood, they would say, the Levites. And so their temptation was to go back to Judaism. Now, if this concern is valid, then Christianity is actually undone. Christ's priestly work is a sham, and his death was for nothing. Of course, the the contemporary concern uh, is is completely different, right? There's a contemporary concern on the other side, and that is that we don't need a priest. I mean, if there is a God, uh, he should just forgive us and move on. I certainly don't need some professional religious person to tell me how to live my life or someone performing sacrifices for my sins. You see, the the temptation in the contemporary world is just to abandon religion altogether. And so you have the ancient Jewish concern that Jesus can't be a priest because he was not of the genealogy of Levi. And then you have the contemporary concern on the other side that we don't need a priest. Now obviously uh, the the writer of Hebrews directly addresses the ancient Jewish concern but for the contemporary concern I want you to concern I want you to think about this just for a, a moment when you get in a fight with your spouse or a disagreement at work or an argument with your neighbor there are all kinds of almost reconciliations when you get half apologies or a simple I'm sorry with no explanation of what was done, so you never are really sure what the person is sorry for. Or worse, you, you have the phrase, I'm sorry you got hurt, which is kind of a backhanded apology. Or, or when the person simply backs down without confessing wrong, or, or maybe they simply say, let's just move on. Or there is the the waited-out method, right, where you never actually address the issue. You just wait until the bad feelings have subsided and resume as if nothing ever happened. None of these is reconciliation, and they leave bitterness and brokenness in their wake. See, when people sin against one another, the only way forward is to talk it out, to confront and confess sin specifically to acknowledge the hurt and the pain that was caused and to ask for forgiveness. Reconciliation is not easy. Now think about this. If it is possible for you to get reconciliation with your friend or your spouse or your coworker wrong, how much more would it be possible to get reconciliation with God wrong? I mean, how do you know that God should just forgive? What makes you an expert on God that you should know what he should do? I mean, have you listened to his side of the story, right? That's an important part of reconciliation, hearing the other person out. Now, does God desire reconciliation? Yes, absolutely. In fact, this is one of the primary reasons that we have the Bible. Second Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, scripture says to the end of reconciliation, God has set up the priesthood. In the Old Testament, it was the Levitical priesthood. And the priesthood was God's method of reconciliation. God wants to draw us near. He wants to kiss and make up. But before we can do that, the hard work of reconciliation must take place. And so if you have any interest in in full reconciliation with God, Consider what he has to say about the priesthood. Now, the part of our text, the part that our text plays in Hebrews is this. Uh, God wants to give us hope, but he wants our hopes to be properly placed. He doesn't want us to hope in ourselves. He doesn't want us to hope in the Old Testament sacrificial system. He wants us to hope in the risen Jesus, our great high priest. And the argument this morning is that we have a better hope than any of those other hopes, because of Jesus, our great high priest. We have a better hope. Uh, Now, the problem is, when we look at what the Old Testament says about priesthood, and then we look at Jesus, he breaks the mold. He doesn't fit. It It is just here that Hebrews says he is a priest, not according to the order of Levi, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, But he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, we will see four things about Jesus this morning. That is that we have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever, who is greater than Abraham and supplants Levi on the basis of his resurrection life. But before we get into that, we have to ask a question. Who in the world is Melchizedek anyway? Uh, Melchizedek is is an interesting and mysterious character. He's mentioned only two times in Scripture before the book of Hebrews. The first is Genesis chapter 14. After a great battle, uh, which Scott read about earlier, there's this great battle, and Abraham is returning with the spoils of war. And Genesis says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That is all we are told about this mysterious figure in the book of Genesis. His name does not even come up again until Psalm 110, verse 4 A verse quoted repeatedly in the book of Hebrews, which says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Apparently, there was something so important about this Melchizedek that a new priest would come who was like him in some sense. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is that priest. And we'll see more about Melchizedek, of course, as then we talk about Jesus this morning. So we have a better hope because, number one, Jesus is a priest king. Now, this is one of those things that doesn't fit the mold of the Old Testament priesthood. In fact, uh, there were a few kings who tried to serve as priests, you may remember, and it did not end well with them. One was Saul, right, who, who wouldn't wait for Samuel to arrive, and so he performed the sacrifices himself, and as a result, he lost the kingdom. The other was Uzziah. He, he became proud and, and took upon himself to perform priestly duties, and God struck him with leprosy until the day he died. You see, in Israel, God kept the priests and the kings separate. Uh, We might speculate and come up with all kinds of reasons why this is a good idea, but whatever the reason, that is how God had set things up. The priests were from the tribe of Levi, hence they were Levitical priests. The kings were first from Benjamin and then later from Judah. But before there was a Levi or a Judah, there was a Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham and receives from him a tithe. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and Salem, which was an early name for Jerusalem, means peace. And so Melchizedek was king of righteousness and king of peace. It's a fitting title for one who would prefigure the Son of God. But the point to note here is that he is both a king and a priest. Unlike the pattern set down in Israel, this pre-Levitical priest was also a king. Now you might think, okay, big deal. I mean, so some random Gentile was a priest king. Lots of Gentile kings also took the title of priest. Well, that's true, but one, they all didn't make it into sacred scripture. And two, go back again to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is really important here. Psalm 110 begins in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110 is a psalm about a king. But then you get to verse 4, and Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, the king of Psalm 110 would also be a priest. Again, this this would not have sit easily in ancient Israel. You you can't have a priest-king. They are two different tribes. But that was not true of Melchizedek. Hence, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Within the Old Testament, Melchizedek set the pattern for a priest-king to come. Now, this is not a, a Christian imposition on a Jewish text, right? This is within the Old Testament itself. Melchizedek sets the pattern for a priest-king to come. The only thing that we add to that is that Psalm 110 has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is the king, seated at God's right hand. He is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is this important? Well, consider the the different, almost opposite roles of priest and king. The king enforced justice and righteousness. The priest sought forgiveness. Kings were essentially uh, Supreme Court judges of one. Priests are mediators, court-appointed attorneys in the court of God. And what this means is the same one who will judge us on the last day is also the one who will plead our case. So we have a better hope. We have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king. And we have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever. Now, we'll come back to this next week when the writer spells this out a bit more. But for now, just notice what the writer says about Melchizedek in verse 3. Chapter seven, verse three says of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now these words have caused so much confusion and debate about the person of Melchizedek without father or mother. I mean, who could that be? What does that mean? And There is speculation uh, that, that he was the Holy Spirit, or, or maybe he was an angel. Some believe that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Jesus before there was a Jesus. Now there, There's a problem, though, with all of those. Uh, the first is, verse 3 says, he resembles the Son of God, or as the NASB has it, he was made like the Son of God. He can't be the Son of God if he was made like the Son of God. He's just like the Son of God. He isn't the Son of God. Uh, The second problem was, is that he was definitely a man, not an angel, not the Holy Spirit. Uh, How do we know that? Well, think about the argument that the writer of Hebrews has been making up to this point. The writer of Hebrews has labored to say that Jesus was a man, fully man. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus came not to help angels, but the children of Abraham, and so became like his brothers in every way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus became like us so that he might be our high priest. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in every way as we are and so sympathized with us in our weaknesses. Hebrews 5.1 says high priests are chosen from among men. Now, how could the writer now introduce a non-human high priest and say Jesus is like him? It would completely undo his argument. And so Melchizedek is a man, just a man, not an angel, not the Holy Spirit, not even the pre-incarnate Christ. So what sense does it make that he would uh, be said to be without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but continues a priest forever, the only real option, and it is uh, uh, that it's what all the best commentators have said, and by that I mean all the ones that I read, but really many of the great commentators on the book of Hebrews, uh, this is the way they understand this passage that Melchizedek is here looked at strictly in terms of what Genesis says. It is not so much what is true of Melchizedek literally, but literarily. And so he is without father or mother or genealogy, meaning that Genesis doesn't mention his father or mother or genealogy. Now, that may not seem odd to us, but remember, Genesis is a book of genealogies. It is tracing the lineage of the seed of the woman. But then in the middle of the story, here comes Melchizedek. He just drops out of the sky, as it were. He comes out of nowhere, no mention of where he came from, no beginning of days, no mention of where he goes, no end of life. And from a literary standpoint, all we know of Melchizedek is his priesthood. Now, if that seems strange, add to that this. The writer of Hebrews is looking at him, at Melchizedek, in terms of how he points us forward to Jesus. Melchizedek seems to drop out of the sky. Jesus does, or at least he comes out of heaven. Melchizedek is a priest forever in appearance, Jesus is a priest forever in actuality. Now, now this disjunction between the type and the fulfillment, between the literary and the literal, it bothers some. How can Melchizedek's enduring priesthood be merely literary while Christ's enduring priesthood is literal? But really, if we think about the way types and patterns in the Old Testament work, that shouldn't bother us. A a type is an image, a person, a place, a thing that sets a pattern that is fulfilled in some greater way, in some greater thing later on. Types never live up to what they signify. Moses delivers from the bondage in Egypt, Jesus delivers from the bondage to sin. Aaron is the first high priest who enters into the most holy place, but Jesus is the great high priest who enters into heaven. God feeds the Israelites manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven. But Jesus feeds us on himself, the living bread. Moses gives water from a rock. Jesus gives the living water of his spirit. David defeats Goliath. Jesus defeats sin. Solomon builds the temple. Jesus is the temple and builds the temple of the church. In each case, there is a connection between the Old Testament type and the New Testament archetype. But there is also a disconnect The archetype is so much greater. And so here with Melchizedek. And if we miss this, the problem is if we miss this, we try to come up with some fanciful explanation for who this person is, the spirit or an angel or whatever. But Melchizedek was just a man. That is the way he is pictured in the book of Genesis as just a man who approaches Abraham. But the way he was portrayed pictures jesus that is the significance of the phrase but resembling the son of god or again as the nasb puts it but made like the son of god he is portrayed like the son of god not that the son of god is made like him but he was portrayed like the son of god so that he would point us forward to the forever priesthood of jesus and so to summarize, right? Melchizedek's character comes out of nowhere, he practically drops out of heaven, no father, no mother, no genealogy in a book of genealogies, no beginning or end in a book of beginnings and ends and births and deaths, Melchizedek's character literally drops out of the sky, performs his function as priest, and then he disappears. But Jesus literally comes out of heaven, and his priestly work has no end. Now, the writer is going to tell us why this is so important in just a bit, but, uh, it, and we'll look at that next week. But as a preview, just look at Hebrews 7.25. In Hebrews 25, the writer says, "Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever. Third, we have a better hope, because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever and who is greater than Abraham. Now, especially when talking to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism, why talk about Melchizedek? They were the children of Abraham, after all. Who cares about Melchizedek? And so the writer begins in verse 4 see how great this man was. Abraham himself gave Melchizedek a tithe. Now, within Israel, the, the Levites received a tithe from other children of Abraham. Though they're equals, they received a tribe from them. But this man, Melchizedek, not of the children of Abraham, and so seemingly inferior, received a tithe from the father of the faithful himself. From Abraham, Abraham gave a tithe and received a blessing. And the argument is that this shows actually that Abraham was inferior and Melchizedek was the greater. Now, the argument in some sense is not about them as individuals, but Melchizedek plays the superior role here. Now, in Scripture, lots of people bless their superiors. It's true. It can go both ways. The psalmist encourages himself to bless the Lord, O my soul. But there is a difference between the, the wishing a blessing upon another and the conveying a blessing upon another. Uh, one who conveys blessing does so from a position of authority. Hence the, the Aaronic uh, blessing in number 6, uh, where Aaron and his sons are, are given authority to bless. Blessing is a priestly function. And Hebrews adds, not only uh, is Melchizedek then superior to Abraham, as the one who received tithes and gave the blessing, but you might even say, verse nine, that Levi, the head of the priestly family in Israel, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, uh, this is an odd way of thinking for us. Uh, Many commentators point out that the writer says, one might even say, as if to say, I know this isn't strictly true, but one might say, Uh, That's the way uh, many commentators take this. But Jesus makes a similar kind of argument, actually, in Luke chapter 20, oddly enough, about Psalm 110. Luke 20, verses 41 to 44, Jesus says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And you see, Jesus' assumption, which is shared by his Jewish contemporaries, is that the son cannot be greater than the father. Now apply that to Hebrews. If Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, demonstrating that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then clearly Melchizedek is greater than Levi, who is the great-grandson of Abraham. Now, the point is uh, the, the greatness of this character, right? He was greater than the father of the faithful, greater than the one who received the promises, and yes, greater than the whole tribe of Levi with its Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Now, again, why is this relevant? Well, the writer wants to give us hope. And he says, look, if you want hope, do you want to place it in Abraham, or do you want to place it in the one who is greater than Abraham, a priest? after the order of Melchizedek. Don't settle, the writer is saying, don't settle, place your hope in the one who is even greater than our father Abraham, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever, who is greater than Abraham and supplants Levi on the basis of his resurrection life. Now, having uh, brought up Levi, the writer gets to the heart of the question, how can Jesus be a priest when he is not of the tribe of Levi? And verse 11 is the clincher. In verse 11, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You see, if the Levitical priests could bring the people to perfection, to their goal of dwelling with God, why would God say many years later, after instituting the Levitical priesthood of some king to come in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Why restart the order of Melchizedek if the order of Levi was doing its job? but they they weren't doing their job because they couldn't do their job. So there was a change of priesthood and a change of law. The law said you had to be of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, to be a priest, but Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. You see, the, the Levitical priesthood, for all the good that it did do, it couldn't bring people to God. In fact, the Levitical priesthood was a constant reminder that people had to stand far off. They could not draw near. They could come into the outer court, but not the holy place. And even the priestly Levites themselves, those who were of the family of Aaron, could only come into the holy place, not the most holy place. And even the high priest could only come into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, once a year. You see, the whole system is designed to show that people cannot draw near. Hence, Jesus Jesus comes to do what Levi could never do. How can Jesus be a priest at all? On what basis? Not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, right? He did not descend either from Aaron or Levi, but, verse 16, by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, to understand Hebrews' argument, uh, you have to consider, again, Psalm 110 and all that the writer of Hebrews has said about it. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Those words were spoken to Jesus when? Well, those words were spoken to Jesus at his ascension to the Father's right hand. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Psalm 110.1 are the words of the Father when he exalted Jesus to his right hand as Lord and Christ in his resurrection and ascension. Psalm 110, verse 1, is spoken of Jesus at his ascension into heaven. Sit at my right hand. And if that's the case, then Psalm 110, verse 4, must also be at the ascension of Jesus. Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On what basis, then, is Jesus a priest? Well, on the basis of God's oath in Psalm 110, and we've seen previously how important God's oath is, unbreakable, but God's oath even here is is dependent upon verse 16, the power of Jesus' indestructible life. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in the power of an indestructible life, and Paul says of the resurrection body that it is glorious and powerful and imperishable and immortal. When Jesus rose from the dead and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he received resurrection life. And it is on the basis of that resurrection life that he can now live forever and be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Only because Jesus rose from the dead can he be a priest forever. And yet it's not just the temporal element that is important here. By rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, Jesus has entered in. The the Levites were held off even from the shadow of heaven in the tabernacle, but Jesus has entered in. Hebrews has repeatedly told us this, that Jesus has gone into the heavenly holy place, and where he is, there we will be also. He has entered in for us, and we will enter in with him. He is a better priest who has accomplished what the Levitical priests could not. Therefore, we have a better hope. We have a better hope because Jesus is a priest king who serves forever, who is greater than Abraham, and supplants Levi on the basis of his resurrection life. What does it matter? Again, it matters because we need such a priest. We need a mediator who can stand in the gap. Sin has made us unfit for God's presence. Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden, out of the presence of their father. We need one who can come and stand in the gap and bring us back. Because of the father's love, Jesus did just that. Jesus came. The father sent his son to bear sin in our place. He faced the father's anger for sin at the cross. The father turned his back on his son, and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced exile and abandonment, the exile and abandonment that we deserve the father did not ultimately abandon him, but raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Jesus now ever lives as our great high priest to intercede for us on the basis of his sacrificial death and resurrection life. And Having entered into the heavenly holy place, he has secured a place there for us that where he is, there we will be also. Friends, this is the priestly work of Of King Jesus. In light of it, let us draw near. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the priestly work of our great King Jesus. We pray, Father, that uh, we would rest in his work, that he has entered in, that we have a place in your presence, and that we, in him, even now, are there in some sense. And we wait for the day and long for the day when we will be there physically seeing you face to face. So, Father, give us that longing, give us that hope, and give us patience that we would wait for that day knowing that it will come because Jesus has already entered in. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.